Well, good morning. Happy Father's Day to our fathers. Hope it's a great one for you. Let's remember VBS this week. I taught college for 15 years and always asked the students how and where, when were you converted? And I don't know what percentage it was for sure, but a good percentage of students every semester would tell me that they were converted at VBS. And so this isn't just a, a week where parents get some time off from the kids. Uh, th this is a very strategic week for the kingdom of Christ. So please be pr in prayer uh, for, our, for our young people and for our leaders as we um, engage them with the gospel. Because it's so important, invariably there's going to be spiritual warfare. So please pray for us. Pray that for a corporate shield of faith to extinguish the flaming arrows of the evil one. And pray that that gospel will continue to do a mighty work as we know that it will in our young people. It's very strategic. Today we're going to be in Ephesians 5, taking a break from John. We'll be back in John 6 next week as we look at Jesus feed the 5,000 men in addition to women and children that were present. In Ephesians 5, we saw the first part of this passage on Mother's Day as the fathers were just relaxed that day. And wives, I told you, that their day was coming. Ephesians 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Father, we come on this Father's Day, and we thank you, first of all, for being our Heavenly Father and being the supreme example to all earthly fathers and to earthly wives, earthly men, earthly women, we thank you, Lord, for being our example. Most importantly, we thank you for being our Savior in your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that where fathers have fallen short, grace abounds. 
for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, even as we consider this passage that could be quite convicting to us all, we pray that we would remember the gospel, the righteousness of Christ which covers us, the blood of Christ which cleanses us, the resurrection of Christ that empowers us to live as you have called us to live in this passage. Father, I do want to pray for our fathers today. There are some here today that perhaps are grieving the loss of their special uh, wife, their spouse. Uh, We pray for grace upon grace on their grieving hearts. We pray for those who perhaps have lost a son or daughter to some tragedy. Uh, We pray for grace upon grace on their hearts. Uh, We pray for those who have lost sons and daughters. We pray for salvation. We pray the gospel would come to bear on their children. Lord, we pray for husbands to love their wives as this text instructs us to do. We pray for uh, men who are married who uh, up to now have not been able with their wives to conceive children. We pray for grace upon grace. We pray your name would be glorified in those situations. Father, we pray ultimately that as we consider uh, our text today, that you would do a work of sanctification in all of us, that we might be conformed to the image of our elder brother who is the ultimate bridegroom. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometime back, there was a dispute in Britain between the Foreign Office and the Department of the Treasury. And the dispute came down to which of the ambassadors from Britain would drive their prestigious British car, the Rolls-Royce, in various capitals of the world. So obviously the, the Treasury Department believed that only a few of these cars should be driven by just a few ambassadors in particularly important capitals like Moscow or Paris or Washington, D.C. But the Foreign Office had a different argument. They believed every ambassador everywhere should be able to drive the Rolls-Royce. Here's what their argument was. Most people in a foreign capital have never been to Britain. But when they see this magnificent car gliding through the streets with the UK flag on the hood, they'll say to themselves, I don't know much about Britain, but if they make cars like that there, then Britain must be a wonderful place. Analogously, our children should be able to say, when I was born into this world, I didn't know much about God, but if God can make a marriage like my mom and dad's, then he must be an amazing and wonderful God. And that's why Godly marriages is the first principle of parenting. And if Scripture gives us a blueprint for godly marriages, it's the passage we just read. Ephesians 5, to verse 33. 
And here's Paul's argument in a nutshell. Before time began, God had marriage on his mind. He was preparing a bride for his bridegroom son. And the gospel of the bridegroom, where he came and fulfilled righteousness for those who were unrighteous and took the cross for those who deserve the cross because of our sin, he made this divine marriage possible. And Paul's point in this passage, marriage exists to display, to preach that gospel. And so here's the most important question we can ask about our parenting. What are our marriages preaching? The message that our marriages preach will either repel or attract our children and even others, we might add, to the Lord Jesus Christ. God desires that all of our children look at our marriages and think, I want a marriage like that and a Christ like that who produced it. The gospel that our marriages are to preach is that in the greatest demonstration of love in the history of the world, the bridegroom allowed himself to be tortured in the place of his undeserving bride so that peace may reign in the place of enmity and alienation. And on Mother's Day, we saw the mother's role in this, biblical submission. But the really significant thing about our text, if you think about it, isn't that Paul calls wives to submit. That would not have been controversial in the first century at all. It would have been no surprise. The real shock is the much longer and even much more challenging call and command to the husbands. In fact, he only spends 40 words on the wives. He's going to spend 115 words on the husbands. And the first thing we see here is the role of the husband, and we're going to have to define what this is, is headship. The role of the husband is headship. Look with me in verse 22. So wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Again, she is submitting not based on the merits or the worth of her husband. She is submitting ultimately to the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is her way of tangibly doing that in her marriage. For the husband is the head of the wife. Even as Christ is the head of the of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, the husband certainly is not the savior of the wife, but there is an instrumental role by which the grace of God, the grace of Christ comes to bear through the headship of the husband. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And so if the word that characterizes the wife's duty 
is submit. And if you weren't here on Mother's Day, you can go back and listen uh, to that message about what it is and what it isn't. The word characterizing the husband's responsibility and call is headship. But what does that mean? Well, let's begin with the obvious. The term head cannot mean nothing. Or Jesus' headship, and remember, see that uh, the equating of, of our headship with Christ's headship. If headship means nothing, then, then Christ's headship over the church means nothing. And Paul doesn't command here, the apostle uh, Paul doesn't command husbands to be heads of the home. They are. That's another point we need to say. You are the head of your home. He's not commanding them. It just is. Now, you can be a poor head or you can be a good head. But a head you will be. If a husband ignores this and abdicates his responsibility, he still leads. He's just leading poorly. But no matter what the husband does, he's leading. You can't get away from it. And hence the word husband. You ever thought about what that word is, what the origin of that word is? Husbandry means a careful management of resources, in particular a farm or crops. And so a husband is, is to be a careful manager of the resources entrusted to him. The husband is called by God to see to it that his garden bear fruit. This means the garden has to be managed. It has to be cared for. It has to be tilled. Now, if someone wants a garden full of weeds, all the husband, all the gardener has to do is do nothing. Husbandry is not necessary. Conversely, a, a heavy-handed husband goes into the garden and tramples it. Now, we, we just saw a recent report come out by a guidepost. And we have seen that there is that kind of man roaming in churches. It's unfortunate. And they must be dealt with by the law and by the church. But more prevalent in churches is not that heavy-handed abuser, though they are present. It's the passive man. Uh, these men aren't, they're not violent, but they do stand around and they watch the weeds grow. They're just passive. They're passive in their homes. They don't lead spiritually. They don't open the Bible in the homes. They don't see to it that their wives and their children are immersed, not just on a Sunday morning at 1045, but immersed in body life. In fact, those kinds of homes, don't be surprised when the children, when they graduate from high school, will leave the church because their passive fathers have taught them for 18 years that the church really isn't that important. That's the passive man. So whether we like it or not, for Paul, the doctrine of headship is critical. In a marriage, it's critical in a home. 
Now, let's look at the reasons why. Look at me in verses 25 to 27. Headship for the wife's holiness. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, Paul is going to use five verbs in verses 25 to 27. Hey, you want to see the main point of a passage? Follow the verbs. That's just an interpretive principle. And there's five verbs in verses 25 to 27 to show Jesus' goal for his bride. The first two we see in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. There's the two verbs, love and gave. At the heart of this pattern is the husband who consciously, daily, moment by moment reminds himself that he is called to be like Jesus going to the cross daily in his marriage. He's equating love and giving himself up. It's not a, a sentimental love. It's not a romantic love that may be there. And sometimes it may not be there. But he's saying this kind of love is the kind of love that gives himself up for his bride. In other words, headship is not liberty for husbands to do what they like. That is a straw man. It is not what Paul is saying. The crown given to the head of the homes is the crown of thorns. And as C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, says, the danger is, that not, is not that men would be so readily able to and put on that crown, but the danger is that they are too willing to give that crown to their wives. So at every stage of the marriage, the husband, who is called to love as Christ loved the church, is to do a kind of crucifixion audit on the way he's leading, loving, acting, and reacting to things in the marriage. That is, he, he gauges the way he treats his wife by the way Jesus treated the church when he gave himself up for her. Why? Verse 26 and 27. This brings us to the last three verbs. So that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Well, let me say, first of all, 
What if you're single? I do want to speak to that. Paul does not have that on his mind here. He does address that in 1 Corinthians 7. Singles matter. In fact, Paul calls singleness a gift. God has other ways of bringing sanctification and godliness to singles. But in the context of marriage, Paul is giving us the instrumental means by which he, he saves his people and conforms them to Christ. So we saw the first two verbs, he loved and gave himself up. The last three we see here. Notice, the reason we're called to love our wives this way, he says, so to sanctify her, what does that mean? When we are born again, when we are converted to Christ through repentance and faith, we are set apart positionally. That is, when God sees us, He sees us in Christ as holy and blameless in his sight. We have the holiness of Christ imputed to us. That's why we can describe ourselves as saints. That's why Paul often uses the letter or the word saints to begin his letters. To the saints in Ephesus, for instance. We are saints. Uh, We are definitively set apart. We are definitively holy, but not practically. Practically, we have to be made holy. Practically, we have to be sanctified. That's the verb. That's the word where we we grow in godliness. We are enabled more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And Paul says the means by which this happens is as husbands love their wives and give themselves up for their wives that he might sanctify her. So it's Christ by the Spirit who ultimately does the sanctifying, but at the instrumental level, he employs husbands who are tilling their gardens. The fourth verb we see, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So cleansing, ceremonial cleansing, where we are cleansed from our pollution. We are cleansed from our unrighteousness and sin. Notice, it comes by the word. It's impossible for a husband to carry out his responsibilities with a closed Bible. And that's not being legalistic to say that. If you have a closed Bible in the home, it's impossible to carry out your husbandry. It would be like a farmer going to his farm or going to his garden without fertilizer, without water, without seed, without a hoe, without the, all the necessary tools. The Word is the essential tool. And then notice that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So the, the husband has a role in the future, last day's presentation of his bride who will stand before God in splendor, having been sanctified without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be made holy and without blemish. In other words, he wants new creation for us. And as we carry out our responsibility, men, to love our wives, that sanctification comes to us. 
And that sanctification comes to them as they are loved by us as Christ loved the church. And this is gloriously significant when you consider the reality of the sin patterns that every spouse knows about his or her spouse. So, your spouse knows if you are bent towards being prideful, which means you're likely very selfish and highly opinionated. That works either way or both ways. You may have a a tendency to being demanding, pouty, if you don't get your way, or passive aggressive. You may be a harsh person who who people tend to respect more than they they like. You may be an undisciplined person with a tendency towards being unreliable or unorganized. You may be a perfectionist with a tendency to being harsh or judgmental or critical. You may be an impatient, irritable person who struggles with a short temper or criticism. Or maybe you struggle with just a holding a grudge. You may be a person who wants far too much to be liked, so you struggle with flattery or shading the truth. Whatever it may be, your parents know, your siblings know, and your closest friends know these flaws in you, these sins patterns in you. But if, if they ever confronted you about them, they likely didn't keep it up because the flaws, the sin patterns, didn't pose and don't pose the kind of problem with them that it will cause with your spouse. But the problem for Christians in that instance, remember this, ultimately is not an obstacle. It's God's strategy. God is using your marriage to not only expose those patterns, but to address them. As as husbands die to self, and love their husbands as Christ loved his bride, and as the bride themselves receive the cruciform love of their husbands. It brings us to verses 28 and 29, headship not only for the, the wife's growth in godliness and salvation and sanctification, but headship for the husband's benefit. Verse 28, in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, which is metaphorically his body. So this is the golden rule applied to marriage. It's generally true that we have a a natural love for ourselves, a a kind of love that's not necessarily sinful. Now, uh, any kind of inordinate love is is sinful. You become a narcissist, you become self-centered, of course. But there's a natural love as well that's not sinful. And Paul says that you need to know that in marriage, 
you have become one flesh. Therefore, if you live for your private pleasure at the expense of your spouse, you are living against yourself. You are living against your own joy. It would be like sticking a basketball with a needle and having the air deflate out of the ball. Uh, You can't bounce that ball after that. You've done something that has done harm to the ball's capacity to function. But if you devote yourself to the holy joy of your spouse, Paul says you'll also be living for your own joy. And this text commands us to do just that because Christ did just that. And that brings us to the final part of this passage, headship, not only for the the wife's benefit, headship not only for the husband's benefit, but ultimately, and this is ultimately the most important aspect of this passage, believe it or not, headship for the purpose of the mystery, for the sake of the mystery. And you'll often hear... um, Husbands or even wives say, I'm I'm divorcing my spouse because I'm not happy anymore or I'm not fulfilled anymore. We're in in the text. Does that have anything to do with anything? Headship for the sake of the mystery. Look with me in verse 30. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife And the two shall become one flesh, leaving and cleaving. This mystery is profound. Paul says this is a mystery. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Notice in verse 31... That's a very important verse. If you have a Bible with cross-references, you'll see that that verse is cited five times in your Bible, beginning in Genesis 2, 24. In fact, that's uh, the controlling passage on marriage, Genesis 2, 24. So when you start reading in the Old Testament about polygamy, uh, there's a wink-wink by the author. The author assumes, as he's writing primarily to Israelites who knew Genesis backward and forward, that something isn't right. This man has two wives. Genesis 2.24 says, one man, one woman. One husband, one wife, one flesh. But this is the most important verse in the Bible on marriage, if you consider its repetition. You know what it means? It means God did not intentionally, he did not put a parent and child in the garden. Which means the parent-child relationship is not the most important. He put a husband and a wife in the garden. And so marriage supersedes all other relationships. And Paul says it's because it displays a mystery. 
You know what else this means? Verse 32 tells us marriage is not about us. It's not about us. It's not about my personal fulfillment, my personal happiness. All that's fruit as I carry out my responsibilities in marriage. Every marriage, even for those who are unbelievers, unfortunately, is a picture of Christ and his church. Because of sin, because of rebellion, many of these pictures are slanderous lies. Could we say most, unfortunately? Most pictures that marriages display are slanderous lies about Christ and his church. So if a man, what's the divorce rate these days? Is it 50%? Forgot to look at that this week. I think it may even be 50% or more. If a man deserts his wife, he is saying this is the way Jesus deserts his bride when he does not like what he sees. If he's harsh with his wife, he is saying this is the way Christ is harsh with his bride when she's not reaching his standard. If a man commits adultery, he is saying Christ cannot be trusted. Yesterday, as Cliff brought out, yesterday I walked into my new office at Lakeview for the first time a year ago. First thing I saw was a life-size cutout of Cliff. (laughs) Thank you. Cliff couldn't come to my office to to welcome me, so he just put his life-size cutout in there for me. But the second thing I saw as I went to my desk and I opened it up, Brother Al had placed a card in there. It was a quote from a man named Robertson McQuilkin. He wanted me to read this first. My first day at Lakeview. And here's what the card said. Infidelity tells a child your your mother is not worth much. And your father is a liar and a cheat. Furthermore, honor is not nearly as important as pleasure. In fact, my child, my own satisfaction is more important than you. That was the message Brother Al left me as I began my tenure here at Lakeview. Very grateful for that. I say amen. But most egregiously, it bears false witness to our pure and faithful bridegroom. But herein lies the resource, this passage, for our being able to live as godly and faithful and biblical husbands, knowing the purpose of the church 
and living in light of Christ's sacrifice for the church. The mystery is how Jesus, through his work, his all-sufficient work, calls a bride to himself and how marriage is to illustrate that. You want to be a godly husband? You want to be a godly father? There is your mandate. But maybe the best way to conclude here, and we'll do this quickly, is by dispelling the myths of what biblical headship is and looking at what it is. We'll move through these quickly. First of all, husbands are never commanded to rule their wives. The Bible never says, husbands, you are to demand submission. I've seen it in, in marriage counseling. I've seen that. Where the husband's more concerned about the wife submitting than he is loving his wife as Christ loved the church. Man, husbands are never called to even concern themselves with their wife's response to them. They're called to love their wives. Second, headship is never portrayed in Scripture as a means for self-satisfaction or self-exaltation. Headship is always other-oriented. Third, headship is not the power of a superior over an inferior. In Genesis 1, it becomes clear that the the man and the woman are equally the image of God. That's the most important thing about us, in fact. Whatever your ethnicity may be, whatever your gender is, you are equally the image of God. And so this is not about superiority or inferiority. It's not about men being smarter than women. Oftentimes that's not the case. It's not about men having better gifts or more superior gifts than women. That is often not the case. It's about the way God has created things to function. One of our big problems in our culture right now is the absence of men leading in the culture and leading in our homes and leading in our churches. It's a dearth of male leadership. God has called men to be the leaders, not because they're superior. Fourth, headship is never to be identified with the issuing of commands, nor does it mean that the husband is to make every decision in the home. The reality is my wife knows a whole lot about a lot of other stuff that I don't know about, and I delegate I delegate decisions to her because it would be foolhardy for me to make decisions on how to decorate a house. That would, it would be, in, we'd be embarrassed to bring you, invite you over. And, and it goes beyond decoration, I can assure you. It goes basically about most things. <laughs> I delegate. Um, so given our text, what is the essence of male headship? Give me two minutes and we'll, we'll be done here. First of all, headship is a responsibility, not a right. It's a responsibility. You're a farmer going into your garden. You're a gardener going into your field, your garden, with a responsibility. And that is your calling. Stott says, too often Christians try to summarize male heel headship by simply saying the husband has the last word in decision-making. 
Such phraseology can mean that even if the wife hates the idea of moving to a distant town, doesn't want a particular home, disagrees with the husband's method of disciplining children, or believes an investment is unwise, the husband should get his wishes. Nonsense. Far from encouraging a husband to exercise this authority for personal privilege, the Bible takes care to direct a Christian man to use his authority for the benefit of his spouse and his family. Second, headship is scripturally boundaried. You do not have the, the authority men, the autonomy men, to lead your wives into sin. That which conflicts with the word of God. And so, I said this on Mother's Day. If a man says, you need to stay home on Sunday. This is the only day we have together. The wife is called to buck that mandate and go to church. Because her husband is calling her to do something that is unbiblical. Forsaking the assembling of the saints. Third, headship does entail the responsibility to make a final decision when agreement can't be reached. So, men have that call to make sure a decision has been made, and sometimes he will delegate that to the wife if she is better informed on an issue. Fourth, headship means honoring your wife. Peter says that if a man does not do so, his prayers will be hindered. Fifth, headship means loving and caring for one's wife as much as Christ loved and cared for us. Absorbing the debt she might owe for her benefit. That's how Christ loved us. He absorbed the debt that we owed for our spiritual benefit. John Stott again, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her in order to cleanse her, sanctify her, and ultimately present her to himself in full splendor and without any defect. The Christian husband is to have the same, similar concern. He longs to see her growing towards that glory, that perfection of fulfilled personhood, which will be the final destiny of all those whom Christ redeems. To this end, Christ gave himself. Finally, headship means taking the lead in reconciliation. One of the great statements on this, John Piper. I don't mean that wives should never say they're sorry. But in the relation between Christ and his church, who took the initiative to make all things new? It was the bridegroom, wasn't it? Who left the comfort and security of his throne of justice to put mercy to work at Calvary? Who came back to Peter first after three denials? Who has returned to you again and again, forgiving you and offering his fellowship afresh? So husbands, your headship means go ahead, take the lead. It does not matter if it is her fault. Usually it's the man's fault, by the way. That's just a side. That didn't stop Christ. Who will break the icy silence first? She might beat you to it. That's okay. But woe to you if you think that since it's her fault, she's obliged to say the first recon reconciling word. Headship is the hardest, most humbling work in the world. And Christ indeed 
is not only our example for this. He is our Savior. He is our reconciler. He came to us when we were in rebellion. You were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Yet now you have been reconciled through the body of his flesh through death. And that death is the example for every believer. But that death is also what we celebrate at the table. What a wonderful providence to be able to observe the table on Father's Day. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.